Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. This morning we are continuing to look at God's Word in our series on biblical worship as we turn to God's Word once again to to guide our thinking. And we've been asking a series of questions to understand worship, uh, place. We've asked who do we worship? We've asked why we worship. We've asked what is this corporate worship that we come to on Sundays. We've asked how do we worship, both with respect to our inward state and attitude as we approach God and with respect to the content of our worship, which should be guided by God's truth and His instructions in His Word. And that brings us today to the question of when. When should we worship God? And when we ask the question of when, we have to immediately acknowledge an important distinction in God's Word. Because on the one hand, there's of course the sense in which our whole lives should be an offering of worship to God. Paul writes in Romans 12 verse 1 that we should present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. In other words, Paul says that we should submit all of ourselves, our, our thoughts, our, our actions, our wills to God, offering ourselves to Him and living for Him as holy and acceptable in His sight. And Paul calls this worship, our spiritual worship. And of course, if living for God and for His honor and glory, submitting ourselves to Him is worship, then the answer to when should we worship is all the time. We should always be living that way because we don't parcel out our lives as if we get these days for ourselves to do whatever we want and these days for God to do whatever He wants. And so as Paul says in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So in, in that sense, there's this comprehensive call to live all of life out of worship for our God. But of course, there's another sense in the midst of this life of spiritual worship in which God calls us to set aside a regular time to gather as His people for worship. And it's in this sense of this regular rhythm we're given in Scripture that I want to ask, when should we worship God together? And to see Scripture's answer, I want us to begin in Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. So if you have your Bibles with you, Follow along with me as we read from God's Word. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting at the window. He sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed, 
and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another portion of your word which you have given to us. Your word is true, it is right, it is perfect, and it is pure. Would you use it to stir our souls and draw us to yourself this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't noticed lately, life is busy. And not only is life busy, but there seem to be constant temptations to make it even busier. Some of the pressures come from needs and opportunities around us with kids and grandkids and family and friends and and ministries. Some of it comes because we're afraid that if we and our kids aren't doing more, we're going to miss out. We're going to miss out on the promotion at work. Our kids aren't going to get the scholarship. And heaven forbid that we might miss out on doing something fun that someone else is doing. And as it turns out, sociologists have taken note of the busyness as well, and they've found it both interesting and concerning. It's interesting because, as The Atlantic magazine noted recently, in one century, American society has gone from seeing leisure as the mark of status to seeing busyness as the mark of status. In 1899, Thorstein Veblen wrote that being absent from labor was the conventional mark of superior achievement in life. Just five years ago, a group of sociologists from Columbia, Georgetown, and Harvard did a comprehensive study and found that today, being busy, or at least seeming to be busy, is now the mark of status, value, and success in our society. This isn't just interesting, though. The trend is also concerning because a wave of studies have demonstrated the significant increase of stress, anxiety, and depression that result both from the busyness itself and from the fear of missing out on what others are doing. In addition, the Journal of Sport, Education, and Society wrote recently that busyness is fragmenting the family, weakening family relationships, and costing kids the solid structures needed to navigate life. But when we turn to God's Word, of course, we find wise advice for work and time and family that would cut against these trends. But when we look to God's Word, we also find that God had a plan to cut against such fragmenting busyness by giving us a day to be together as God's family and to rest in worship, an opportunity that would be a joy and a blessing, not a burden or another thing on our to-do list. And what I hope that we will see this morning is this, that throughout Scripture, God has given His people a regular rhythm for worship together as a moral command for our good. In the statement I've just given you, I've made three claims, that God's given us a regular rhythm to be together for worship, that that rhythm is a moral command, and that it was given for our good. And I want to consider each of those in turn. So let's start, firstly with the claim that in Scripture we find God establishing a regular rhythm to be refreshed in worship. And that regular rhythm, that pattern, starts at the very beginning in the book of Genesis. God tells us that He created the world in six days, but then Genesis 2-2 says, And God rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Now what does it mean that God made the seventh day holy? 
Well, we find out more details in Exodus chapter 16, when God brings his people out of Egypt and tells them that as his people, they are to do no work, but to rest on the seventh day as a holy Sabbath day to the Lord. Of course, a few chapters later, we find this is the fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, the main emphasis in the Old Testament is that the Sabbath day was a day for rest. We don't have as many details on what Israel was supposed to do on the Sabbath, but Leviticus 23.3 says that the Sabbath was both a day for rest and a holy convocation or a holy assembly together. And not only this, but we know that after the exile, when Israel returned, the primary activity of the Sabbath day was gathering at the synagogue to hear from the Word of God. Luke chapter 4, verse 16, for instance, says that when Jesus came to Nazareth, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And there at the synagogue, we find many from scribes and officials to people of the town gathered to hear God's Word around uh, around their assembly in, in the synagogue. And so God's rhythm for Israel was to rest and gather for worship on the seventh day. Now, of course, after Christ's death and resurrection, the New Testament declares that this seventh-day Sabbath is no longer binding on Christians, for the Sabbath was a shadow or type pointing forwards to Christ. Paul says in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, let no one pass judgment on you regarding food, drink, a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In fact, Paul goes on then to say that to cling to those regulations is to cling to self-made religion rather than to Christ himself. But while those in Christ were not required to keep the Jewish Sabbath, that does not mean that God had ended his plan for a regular rhythm for gathering for worship. Instead, almost immediately we find believers gathering for worship on the first day of the week. This is what we saw there in Acts chapter 20. If you look at Acts chapter 20, the believers in Troas gathered on the first day of the week. And I think it's very significant that verse 7 does not say we happened to gather on the first day of the week, but it says on the first day of the week when we were gathered. It speaks as if this was the expected rhythm of the week, when we were gathered on the first day of the week. And what what did they do there on the first day of the week? Well, they heard Paul preach a sermon, uh, a sermon I might note, which was quite a bit longer than mine is going to be today. So if any of you think I'm droning on, just uh, compare it to Paul here and we'll maybe be in good shape. They heard Paul preach. Then, then of course, they broke bread together. Uh, we read in verse 11. And then it says that after breaking bread, they conversed together until Paul departed at daybreak. They fellowshiped together. Preaching of the word, the breaking of bread and fellowship. This is, of course, the same pattern we found in Acts chapter 2 when the believers gathered together. They gathered together and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to breaking bread, to fellowship, and prayer. And so we have this pattern, this activity of the early believers as they gathered on the first day of the week. Of course, we might ask the question, why did they gather on the first day of the week? And surely it was because this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. 
And in honor of his resurrection, the first day of the week became known as the Lord's Day. We see the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, talking about the Lord's Day. In other words, almost immediately, the church had a regular rhythm, a day on which they gathered for preaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer, and that day was the first day of the week. I love the way one church historian put it. He summarized the situation this way. He acknowledges that in the first century, we don't have a lot of historical records about the church, but he says, when the evidence becomes available in the second century, Sunday worship appears as the universal Christian practice. There is no trace of any controversy as to whether Christians should worship on Sunday, and there is no record of a single Christian group that did not worship on Sunday. And such universality confirms what we see hints of in the New Testament, that God's people continued a regular rhythm of gathering for worship now on the first day of the week since Christ's resurrection. And so as we look to Scripture, Old Testament and New, we see this pattern of a time to be together, a time for a holy convocation around God's Word and with God's people. The second claim, though, that I made was that this isn't just a pattern, that this is a moral command. And once again, we see this in both the Old Testament and the New. In the Old Testament, God did not say to Israel, so I've got this idea for a Sabbath, if any of you would like to rest a bit more. It's not what he said at all. He said, you shall do no work, and you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Isaiah chapter 56 and verses 1 and 2 emphasizes the importance of the Sabbath when the Lord calls his people to do four things. Keep justice, do righteousness, keep the Sabbath, and keep your hand from evil. Do you hear the place of the Sabbath and God's call right alongside of keeping his rules, doing righteousness and not doing evil? Ezekiel 20 rehearses the reasons for why God is going to pour out his judgment on Israel. And in verse 13, he declares, they did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. You see, in the Old Testament, this Sabbath was a command and a reason for judgment when Israel did not keep it. In the New Testament, we see again, Not just a pattern, but a command to gather for worship. If you think of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, the author of Hebrews writes, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In fact, I think it's interesting, isn't it, that when the author of Hebrews gives this command not to forsake gathering together for worship, that he says the urgency of this command only increases as we see the day of Christ's return drawing near. And so this is not something for us to take lightly. As Christ's return draws near, we dare not ignore the urgency of Scripture's instruction to gather together as his people on this first day of the week. Of course, If we're concerned for our spiritual good, we shouldn't really be tempted to ignore Scripture's instructions. Because the third claim that I made is that this command is a blessing for the good of God's people. 
In fact, I think what you'll find if you look back over Scripture is that every passage about the Sabbath and about gathering for worship comes with a blessing to this rhythm that God has established. Exodus 16, Exodus 20, and Leviticus 23 all emphasize the blessing of rest from work and the duties of life. Deuteronomy 5, 15, when Moses reiterates the Ten Commandments, he reminds Israel, he tells them that one of the reasons for keeping this day holy is because God saved them from Egypt. In other words, this Sabbath day not only called Israel to rest as God rested in creation, but also called them to remember and rejoice in God's salvation. Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14, promises that if God's people keep the Sabbath holy, they will delight in the Lord, and He will make them ride on the heights of heaven. In Ezekiel 20, verse 11, God says that He gave His Sabbaths to Israel as a sign between Him and His people that they might know that the Lord is the one who sanctifies them. In other words, the the Sabbath was a reminder and a seal of God's promise that He has set Israel apart And he has made them his, and he is the one who makes them holy. I think the author of Hebrews traces out another blessing of the Sabbath day uh, that, that the Sabbath signified. He notes that God invites his people to join in his post creation rest, but the author of Hebrews says that rest didn't come in the promised land under Joshua. Instead, the true Sabbath rest comes to those who believe. And when we trust Christ, we know the joy of resting from our works through faith in Him. And yet, the author of Hebrews says, we are also to strive to look forward to the day when we will enter His eternal rest with Him. In other words, Sabbath rest points towards the final and perfect rest we will have when Christ returns and we are with Him forever. So if you step back, I just gave you a lot of scripture passages. I threw a lot of things at you, but step back for a second and trace out this theme through scripture. And what do we find? We find out this, that this theme of a day that the Lord has given his people is a tremendous blessing. It's a time to rest in the Lord, to delight in the Lord. It's a sign and a reminder that God is the one who saves his people and has sanctified his people. And it's a chance to anticipate final, eternal rest with him. And while the details have changed from the Jewish Sabbath, our gathering for worship on the Lord's Day now communicates the same blessings. This is a time of rest in the Lord, a reminder and a proclamation that God has saved us and sanctified us, has set us apart as his. It's a time to delight in the Lord and to anticipate our full and final rest when Christ comes again. I was thinking about this this week. And as I thought about it, I thought about the joy and the blessing of ending your week with a date night with your spouse. You know the busyness of the week. You've spent all your week caring for the kids, keeping the house together, serving, attending meetings, and finally you have a chance to go out and enjoy a dinner together. And is this date night another activity we have to add to our schedule? Another obligation for us to fulfill? If it is, Dr. Light's available for counseling right after this service. No, of course not. That's not how we think of a date night. A date night isn't another thing on our calendar. It's a time to be refreshed. It's a time we delight in. It's a time to be called out of the busyness 
to be together. It's a blessing. And the same is true with coming together as God's people for worship on this first day of the week. It's not another thing to add to our schedule, another thing we have to go to. This is our time of refreshing in the joy of the Lord, a time of blessing as we gather as his people to worship his name. So this is our claim from Scripture regarding when we worship, that God has set aside a regular rhythm to gather for worship on the seventh day in the Old Testament, on the first day of the week in the New Testament, that this is a command for us to gather for worship, and that this command is a blessing, a tremendous blessing for God's people. But if this is what God's Word tells us, let's conclude once again with three applications for our worship. And the first is this. Based on all that we have seen from Scripture, gathering to worship with God's people each Sunday should be among the highest priorities in our life. Now, there's a famous illustration that many of you have probably heard of a professor who set a jar on his desk. And then he put a number of large stones in that jar, filling it up to the top. And he asked his students, is the jar full? And they said, yes, the jar is full. But then he reached down in his desk and took a a handful of small pebbles. And he poured those pebbles in around the rocks, filling in the spaces. And he said, well, now is the jar full? And the students were sure it was full this time, but then he reached down again and pulled out a handful of sand and dumped the sand in, which filled all the little nooks and crannies. And and the point uh, of the illustration has to do with our priorities in life. Because, of course, if you put the sand in first and then you put the, the little pebbles in, the big rocks aren't going to fit anymore. And in our life, we have to make our priorities what is most important. Because if we prioritize less important things, we won't have the time or the energy for what is most important when we're done. And so here's the question for each of us when it comes to our gathering for worship. What is coming to worship together on Sunday in your jar? Is it a large rock? Is it a large rock that always goes in first and requires the other things in life to fit around it? Or is worship for you a medium-sized pebble? It's important we do it unless a bigger rock happens to come in on a given Sunday, a a soccer tournament or a hockey game or tickets to the Ravens game, or maybe some of you say that's not a priority at all. I would never go to a a Ravens game. Uh, or, Or maybe it's rest after a busy week. And if something like that comes up, then worship may not happen that week because it's a, it's a medium sized pebble. Or is, or is gathering for worship like sand? It's a good thing to do when it's convenient, but we fit it in around the edges when possible. I want you to look back at the passage from Acts 20 for a minute. Do you notice the priority that early believers placed on being together for worship? Remember, of course, that Sunday was not a holiday in the Roman world for the first 300 years of the church. And every commentator I've read on this passage agrees this is a gathering in the evening after these believers have worked a full day of work all day long. But it was a gathering of such blessing and priority that they continued to meet straight through the night. 
a letter from Pliny, who was a first century Roman governor. Pliny was not a fan of Christians, but he described Christians in their practice to the emperor Trajan in his letter, and he expresses the same thing, stating that Christians on a fixed day would arise before dawn to come together to sing hymns to Christ to one another, and then they would depart, and then later they would reconvene, presumably after all of their work was done, to break bread together in the evening. Do you see how even for them on, when, in, a, in, a, in a time when work was a requirement all day, they still shaped this first day of the week around their time together to break bread, to fellowship, to hear the word preached? I think it's very much worth acknowledging that in our culture, prioritizing our time on Sunday for worship requires us to swim upstream. We swim upstream against the pressures of busyness. We swim upstream against the pressure to to be at our sports games. We swim upstream against requirements for our job. But that's nothing new for God's people. Look back to the early days of the the believers. Long day at work? Doesn't matter. Going to be extra tired tomorrow? So be it. This isn't just another activity in their schedule. It was their day to be together around the Word of God in the fellowship of God's people to break bread together, and it shaped their day. If I'd put it another way, I'd put it this way. Be encouraged, people of God. We're not expecting you to walk into church fresh and perfect for everyone else to see. We come perhaps tired, exhausted from the week, maybe discouraged against the things in life or the battles against sin and the pleasures of the world. But we come here because it is where we need to be, where God has called us to be and commanded us to be for our good. This is where we find blessing from Him. And so it is our desire and our priority, the big rock that goes into our jar first. And the rest of life fits around our time with the Lord and His people. That's our first application. The second application is this. The best way to make worship on the Lord's Day, our desire and delight, is to make it our habit. Now, I don't mean that we should make it a mere habit, but that we make it something we always do that shapes us for our good. James K. Smith is a professor at Calvin College, and he argues that we aren't changed by thinking something new. We are changed in life when we do something over and over so it becomes part of us and it shapes us. He uses the example of riding a bicycle. When you first learn to ride a bicycle, you aren't really free to let it shape you or or get, get in shape or enjoy it because you have to constantly think, all right, how do I get this pedal up so I push it forward again? And, oh no, there's a mailbox coming. How do I turn? And you know, how do I stop? Which direction do my legs go? And you're so busy thinking about this that it's a chore. And we've just gone through learning how to ride a bike in our household, so, so I know it's, it's work and effort. But of course, once you learn how to do it and have done it for years, it becomes a habit and we do these things instinctively. And then we're freed to delight in riding our bike. And and riding our bike can keep us in shape and and it can be part of us. And in the same way, going to church should not be something that's up for debate or we have to think about each week. It should be something we do over and over. It becomes part of us so that every week we go through this pattern of being gathered at the summons of God to listen and hear the word of God and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and we commune with God and each other and are molded by our time together as a body. And then we are sent as his representatives back into the world. And as this rhythm and pattern shapes us week after week of being gathered at the summons of God, listening to the word of God, communing together as God's people, and then being sent back into the world, it begins to shape us and who we are. In fact, part of what cuts against the busyness and idolatry and the pleasures and entertainments of the world is the habit and the commitment to the rhythm of being together in worship, communing with God and his people week after week. If we ignore that, other things will creep in and shape us. They will wear us down. But if we follow God's pattern, we will receive God's blessings as he and his rhythm make us more and more of who he wants us to be. So that's our second application. And finally, our third application is this. May we never forget that gathering and our time to worship is a reminder of and a sign of the rest that we have in Jesus Christ. For those of us who know our sin and our desperate need of salvation, in Christ we have the rest that we so long for. We've already noted that Deuteronomy 5.15 mentions God's salvation as one of the motivations for keeping the Sabbath in the Old Testament. And we fast forward to Hebrews 4 and we find that faith in Christ brings us into God's rest as by faith we rest from our works as God did from His. And we look forward to that day when we will enter His rest fully with Him. But do you see how once again everything we talk about when it comes to worship comes back to Christ? In Christ is the fullness of the glory of God making Him worthy of our worship. Christ is our access into the presence of God. As sinners, we have no ability to come before God and offer Him acceptable worship except through Jesus Christ. Christ is the head of the body. He is the one who meets with us and shapes us in His image through worship. And coming to Christ sets us free from the impossible burden of trying to work ourselves into the favor with God or seeking to maintain our standing before Him. No, because in Christ, we are washed clean by his blood. We are forgiven by his sacrifice on our behalf. We are raised to new life by the power of his spirit dwelling in us by faith, and we find rest in him. This is why Jesus summoned those who listened to him in Matthew eleven twenty eight to come to him, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And coming together on this first day of the week to rest and worship together is a reminder of that and points us back to the glory of our salvation in Christ. So I don't know what might be wearying you this morning. Maybe it's the weariness of a crazy schedule. Maybe it's the weariness of illness or age. Maybe it's the weariness of grief, suffering, or conflict in your life. But whatever it is, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have the source of eternal, perfect, complete rest in Him. So come to Him. Rejoice in Him. Rest in Him. And as we worship together on this first day of the week, may we be refreshed in Him while we wait for that great and eternal rest which will be ours when Christ returns and we are taken to be with him forever. 
Let's pray. Our God, what a blessing it is that you have called us to be together in worship. That you have called us to this pattern, this command not to neglect being together with one another, but that in this command we find great joy and blessing. A time that we come to delight in you, to be gathered by you, set apart by you as your people, to be reminded of your salvation, that you are the one who sanctifies us, that we have rest in Christ now and a perfect rest to come. And so, Father, would this time be one of joy and refreshing for us as we gather together? And would we be committed to it as week after week it shapes us more and more into your image? We would ask this to be true for your glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.